Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer, and on this podcast, I talk with other researchers about science and whatever else comes up. Today, I'm very excited to bring you this conversation with Dr. Mika Tosca. On her website, Dr. Tosca describes herself as a climate scientist, a humanist, and an activist. She's an assistant professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and an affiliate climate researcher at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California. I've been wanting to have Mika on for a very long time, and so I'm really happy that we were able to get our schedules to line up, and I'm really happy that she agreed to come on. We had a really fun and interesting conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it. We discussed fire, cloud, climate dynamics, which is a topic that I knew very little about and now know a little bit more about, thanks to Dr. Tosca. We also talked about how Mika is hoping to bring about a real two-way relationship, a real two-way conversation between art and science. That was really, really interesting. You know, often we just think of art as, when we think of the interface between art and science, we normally just think of science communication and presentation, but what she's talking about goes deeper than that, and it's really fun to talk about and learn from her and see what she's got in mind here. We touched on techno, the 90s rave scene in the UK, the house scene in Chicago, gender and science, and a lot more. On her website, Mika describes herself as an out and proud transgender scientist and a vocal advocate for the queer and trans communities in Chicago and beyond. I'm also really excited to say that we were joined by my new co-host, Dr. Ella Gilbert. Dr. Gilbert is a climate scientist who works on polar clouds, among many other things. She's a science presenter and a champion boxer. I was thrilled to have her on for this episode. She added something really special to the conversation, and I just thought that the three of us talking was, was a lot of fun, and I'm so uh, happy that we were able to do it. I really, really am excited to bring it to you as quickly as possible. You can find Dr. Tosca on Twitter at trans underscore icon underscore Mika. And you can find Dr. Ella Gilbert at Dr. underscore Gilbs. That's with a Z, G-I-L-B-Z on Twitter. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, no underscores. And you can follow the podcast at Climate SciPod. Yeah, okay, here's some websites to check out too. Uh, MickTosca.com, that's got all of Mika's stuff, including her work, uh, recent work and other personal information and things. You've also got ellagilbert.co.uk if you want to learn more about Ella, and uh, danjonesocean.com for me, although I don't have a ton of stuff on there. Yeah, that's fine. Okay, so I think that's all I have to say up top. Let's go ahead and get into this conversation with Dr. Mika Tosca, featuring Dr. Ella Gilbert as well. Okay, here we go. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Uh, okay. I can. Oh, yeah, really good. Wow, I like your background. Like, thanks. I was about to say the same thing. I like your background too. <laughs> I, yeah, you. good I selection have... of plants. What's that? Good selection of plants. Yeah. I know, right? They're all like really struggling waiting for the spring. It's like 10 degrees outside Fahrenheit. So, mm. what is that in Celsius? Like minus 10? Something like that? 
<laughs> I know. Cold. They're suffering. So you're trying to keep them inside, keep them warm a little bit. It's yeah. horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So this is my co-host, Ella Gilbert. And nice to meet you. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thanks. Let me just start off by saying thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. So, Thank you. This is my one podcast that I've ever done. So. Oh, yeah. A baptism of fire, I'm sure. <laughs> What's that? A baptism of fire, I'm sure. Uh, we'll see. Is it? Not at all. No, that would be quite fun. Is that what we do? I don't think that's what we did. <laughs> oh, sorry. That. Did I not get the memo, Dan? <laughs> Tone it down. I'll just tear up my notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, see you later. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been good talking to you. <laughs> I got to get out of here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, I wanted to ask, um, is it pronounced uh, Mika or Mika? Which? Mika. 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 Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I was realizing that even though I've been following you on Twitter for a very long time, I was like, oh wait, I've never heard her name said out loud before. <laughs> didn't, we, didn't we meet like a long time ago at like some... Um, young scientist in southern france or something am i getting that right close we did actually meet uh in egu in vienna oh, EGU. Right. Yeah. yeah that's right it might have been 2014 it might have been that long ago 13 yeah maybe even earlier somewhere around there yeah somewhere around there yeah so we sat around we had pizza with um a few people um oh gosh his name escapes me i went to grad school with him um shoot no oh, levi levi silvers was there <laughs> that's right that's right yeah. i remember very distinctly like and then we walked around or something got drunk like, yeah i'm pretty sure we did i, I really remember it too because i don't remember a lot of specifics but i remember we in my memory we had a lot of fun we were like laughing a lot so like i remember it as like a really good time <laughs> yeah. it sounds like quite a classic egu experience pizza yeah. and beer yeah and drunkenness <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. With maybe some science thrown in there here and there. If a little feel, bit. Yeah. A scattering. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Like a topping on a pizza. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah. Oh man. So there's not really like a rigid structure or anything. It's meant to be pretty conversational. Um, I've got a list of notes and things down here, but it's not meant to be like an agenda that I march us through. You know, it's just meant to be uh, fuel for the conversation, things to kind of keep us rolling ahead, rolling along there. Sounds good. And yeah, I, and by the way, I'll send you everything before I release it, so you can make sure you're happy with everything. And you know, if there's stuff you want me to cut out, that's totally fine. You'll have an opportunity to to do that. So I I record right from the beginning because I like to get some of that stuff. But um, you know, sure. I just think it's kind of nice. I like those first first moments and things. Um, yeah. So. There's lots of different stuff we could talk about, but, uh, and this question is far too big, but I was wondering if you could just tell me everything, not everything, not literally everything, but if you could tell me a lot about that connection between wildfires and clouds and the climate system, you know, it'd be great to hear about that. And especially if there's any kind of recent projects you've been working on in that, in that kind of area, because I really know very little. Uh, Ella knows a good bit. She's a, knows a lot about clouds and, uh, but uh, I, I don't know hardly anything about that connection there. That's cool because uh, clouds are, I think, continue to be one of the most vexing 
uh, problems in in climate science, and probably Ella would agree. Uh, oh I think, yes, <laughs> <clears throat> and I think one of the main like sort of issues with that is that cloud formation and the physics that dominate how clouds are formed, um, how clouds rain, where they move, etc. Why clouds rain? Sorry, is um is it's so uh, regionally specific? It's it's really like meteorologically specific, and so. Um, you know, I set out in 2006 at the beginning of my grad school program um, trying to investigate the ways that aerosols emitted by fires, uh, particulates emitted by, emitted by fires, um, interact with uh, clouds and also just the radiation budget kind of more, more broadly. Um, and immediately I was confronted with this sort of uh, problem uh, that... Uh, you can't really, there's no real like answer. There's no real like universal answer to this. It depends on where you are, what time of year, how big the fire is, what color uh, or brightness or darkness of the aerosols, uh, what kind of cloud, what kind, what time of day. So there's like, a, you know, it's, it's just like an endless uh, problem, which I mean, Ella is nodding along. So I think that it's all, <laughs> you know, pretty widely understood. I think it's, you know, but I will say that um, <clears throat> most of my research prior to coming to uh, where I am now at SAIC, which maybe we'll talk about later, um, yeah. is uh, was looking at tropical for forest fires, tropical wildfires. Um, specifically, I focused on kind of like two main regions, um, equatorial Asia and, uh, and uh, kind of sub-equatorial Africa, I guess you could say. So the Sahel region and Southern Africa, um, like kind of on the outskirts of the, of the Congo rainforest. Um, and the region, the reason that I selected those regions um, to look at is because A, they're very interesting. Um, B, they're, they're very understudied. I think there's just like a dearth of literature and a dearth of, um, or at least at the time, you know, when I started this, there was like a dearth of, um, you know, just research into these regions. There's a ton of research on wildfire in North America, for example, um, but <clears throat> uh, most of the wildfires on Earth actually happen in the tropics, um, and specifically in Africa, actually, which is like one of the most understudied um, continents, if we were to sort of look at the whole continent climatologically, um, which was a big reason why I participated in a field campaign in 2016 now, it feels like so long ago, um, in Southern Africa called Oracles. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, it was a, it was a NASA, um, it was, I think the, the agency that led the project was NASA, but it was in collaboration with a bunch of other, um, scientists from other places like, um, the University of Washington, uh, Miami, uh, in Florida, etc. So, um, the, the kind of big message, I guess, that I derived from my research, uh, the, the answer, so to speak, is that, um, <clears throat> so I'll cut to the punchline first, is that uh, <laughs> wildfires, uh, specifically in these regions that I'm talking about in Africa and in equatorial Asia, they emit uh, particulates, smoke particulates that um, are kind of a, a mixture of organic and black carbon. Um, they're reasonably bright, but they're also somewhat absorptive. Um, they're not as absorptive as like, you know, dark black soot, for example, but they're fairly absorptive. Um, and so they interact with clouds. Um, 
the main way that they interact with clouds that I found was um, through what's known as the semi-direct radiative effect, um, aerosol radiative effect, which basically is, I mean, I've got a whole lecture on this for my students, but um, I'll try and trim it down to like 30 seconds. Um, they, they uh, while suspended in the atmosphere, in the middle atmosphere, um, in the boundary layer, they absorb um, sunlight from the sun, LOL sunlight from the sun. Um, they absorb sunlight <laughs> and uh, that causes that, that layer of the atmosphere to uh, heat up. Um, it also causes the layer below it to cool down. Um, and so this uh, reduces uh, what we call the lapse rate. It reduces the instability of the atmosphere. So yeah, air yeah. rises in the atmosphere because uh, you know, because um, it's colder aloft, and so you know, it, it rises up uh, through a number of different um, mechanical and non-mechanical processes. Mm -hmm. But when you put aerosols in this layer, um, and they're absorbing sunlight, they're absorbing radiation, they're warming the layer, they're decreasing the instability, and so the end result is that they're decreasing the ability for clouds to form. Um, mm -hmm. So clouds form via this um, unstable uh, regime in these regions that I was studying. Um, and so when you introduce aerosols, uh, we found both in uh, model results uh, using global climate models and radiative transfer models, um, <clears throat> and also through satellite observations, uh, we found that, and I can elaborate on that too, but we found that, um, you know, this decreased overall um, ability of clouds to form. And um, I hypothesize and continue to hypothesize that this would have a positive feedback effect where you have fires which are, um, you know, during the dry season, so there are already less clouds um, started by humans, most of them in these regions. Um, they spread because it's the dry season. And so there's a relationship between how cloudy it is, how rainy it is, and fires, right, spreading. Um, but once those uh, smoke aerosols get up into the atmosphere, um, you know, induce this semi-direct radiative effect, reduce cloud cover even more, this would then in turn potentially uh, fuel the fire even more because you have a less cloudy sky, you have a less rainy atmosphere, and so then you have more fire. The one component that's missing is uh, the human response, right? So um, since these fires are started by humans, we don't really know, there's not really a robust way necessarily to test whether humans are actually responding to the less cloud cover, but, um, my hypothesis, I guess, is that they are, and that these fires are kind of um, operating within a positive feedback framework. Hopefully that is what you were looking for. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that sounds really interesting. I was just found myself wondering about, is that a relatively local effect? You know, how, what's the kind of spatial scale of that connection between the, the fire and the cloud cover? And I, I also, thought it was really interesting what you're, you were talking about, about aerosols changing the, the lapse rate, you know, the rate of change of temperature with height, that kind of stratification, the kind of way the atmosphere is all layered up. And it's uh, one of the things I can relate that to is, is ozone, you know, ozone up in the stratosphere does something similar where it changes how some of the radiation from the sun is absorbed. So it changes where the heating happens mm -hmm. and to, work that out numerically to deal with that numerically you need this like a nice numerical model with lots of layers where the layers can all exchange energy with each other to see what the net effect is um but 
Yeah, yeah and that's a, that's obviously an atmosphere-wide process, but is the fire process that you're talking about more of a local one, or can it affect a larger spatial scale than just where the fire is? Yeah, so it de it depends. It depends. <laughs> every every mm. answer that you, you're gonna get yeah. from me is like it depends. Um, <laughs> but uh, it depends. It depends how big the fire is. Um, depends where the aerosols are are, are being emitted, um, and it also depends. Uh, what kind of fire it is and what time of day. But in general, I would say it's a fairly localized effect. Yeah. Um, okay. in, in Africa, for example, the fires are generally agricultural burning. Um, they usually burn the fields, um, both after the growing season and, and, and to, to kind of recycle the nutrients into the, into the soil. It's kind of a natural fertilizer. Um, they've been doing this cultural practice for, for millennia actually mm. in Africa. Um, and uh, there's some great papers on it by like Sally Archibald, for example, who writes about like fire in Africa, history of fire in Africa and kind of um, all about that. I highly recommend. Um, but those fires are, are, are each individually very small, but there's like, you know, thousands of them, millions of them. Um, and so they create kind of a, a more homogeneous smoke plume uh, that kind of covers the continent and actually drifts out over the the Atlantic Ocean. And if 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 uh, if we're thinking about um, you know for example Southern Africa, it would drift out over the South Atlantic Ocean. And if we're thinking about Northern Africa, it would drift out over the the North Atlantic Ocean, which um, you know has potential implications for um, cross Atlantic uh, travel uh, of that smoke. Mm. But in general. The, the effect is, is fairly localized. Um, okay. Yeah. yeah. But it also yeah. depends, it depends on kind of where they are in the atmosphere too. And so mm. actually my, my current research, like where I, where I took this was looking at like vertical distribution of smoke emissions, where they go, because that impacts like, are they going above the clouds, below the clouds, into the clouds? That's really important. Cool. I was just going to ask, because you say that, um, I guess that smoke drifts out over the, the Atlantic or whichever ocean we're talking about. Does that then have an impact on something like the marine clouds? Because, of course, aerosols are going to act as cloud condensation nuclei and act as little seeds so that more clouds can form. So is there like a, almost a cascade of processes that can trigger more clouds later on of different types? That's a that's a really good question, actually, and that was like the the, the primary um, focus of the Oracle's campaign. Actually, was looking at how these <laughs> smoke aerosols impact marine clouds. It's not something that I, in my research, have focused super um, heavily on. I was looking more at like convective clouds over land, um, but absolutely, like there's been a number of papers. I actually just reviewed a paper um, by the Oracle's team um, looking at. Uh, above cloud aerosol optical depth and how we determine that and what that means for um, the clouds below it. Um, but in general, in Africa, uh, if we're talking about Africa, uh, the smoke is going above the marine clouds. And so that's yeah, quite low than the smoke that's going into the marine clouds from, for example, the smokestack on a ship, right? So we often talk about um, uh, ship, uh, ship tracks which is like a, a, usually like a cargo ship or a, um, a ship that's, that's moving goods, um, you know, below a layer of uh, marine clouds. And that's going to have a very different effect than fires above. Generally speaking, um, 
<clears throat> the ship tracks, um, because they're coming from below the clouds, they enhance the brightness of the clouds through like a sort of microphysical effects. Mm-hmm. And the smoke above the clouds, uh, the aerosols above the clouds from, from smoke in Africa, um, has a very different effect because it's it's um, if viewing from space, it's going to be bright uh, darker than the clouds below it. Um, and so it's going to have a totally different effect, similar to the one that I was just describing, the semi-direct effect and the absorption, absorption of radiation and all that kind of thing. Uh-huh. It's always so interesting to see how the kind of the dynamics uh, interacts with things like chemistry and the microphysics of clouds. I always think that's fascinating how things like the lapse rate or the stability of the atmosphere where you've got this changing profile with height and things like the size of ice crystals or the actual composition of these things that are getting emitted, how it all fits together. It's clouds, they're fascinating. Yeah, and there's, like, <laughs> there's actually been kind of a, um, I don't know if it's like controversy, but there's a lot of sort of um, competing theories about, specifically about these like convective clouds. So mm-hmm. um, most of like the, you know, the subtropics, will receive their rain in kind of these, what we might think of as like monsoonal convective clouds, right? They're, they're not like large scale um, advective systems that would come across like Europe or, or central mid-latitude regions in North America. These are like convective clouds. I like to call them like Simpsons clouds um, because they're kind of like, you know, um, cumulus and cumulonimbus. And so there's um, kind of, there's, there's the semi-direct uh, theory that I'm that I'm talking about but there's also these these indirect microphysical effects that you brought up which is that the clouds the aerosols in the clouds actually change the microphysics of the cloud particles themselves the cloud droplets themselves they make them um, smaller potentially um, because if you introduce more aerosols then you have more cloud condensation nuclei and so the individual droplets become smaller and so there's a theory that as these droplets are in this dynamic convective cloud they get carried up higher instead of raining out right away. And as they do that, they turn to ice, and this ultimately makes the cloud rain more, um, which would be kind of the opposite effect of the semi-direct effect, which would make the cloud um, kind of not form at all or form in a much more uh, limited way. And so there's no an- there's no real answer to, <laughs> to this. Yeah, and that's, that's why I was saying it's very regionally specific, and it can, also, it can be very, like, localized, like, meteorologically it's just classic clouds like being really complicated and having loads of competing effects it's the Tricks. same wherever you are. I know. <laughs> totally. And it's kind of a chicken and egg thing too when you're looking at like satellite data because you're like, I've got these aerosol data, I've got these cloud data, and I'm drawing some conclusions, but it's like which came first, you know? And that that's always kind of been the the overriding uh, difficulty with all of this research, which is why aerosol cloud interactions is like something that's still very much ongoing and people are still very much thinking about it. Yeah. So you're giving us a picture as to why when you look at all of the you know the uncertainties on the climate forcing picture from the ipcc reports why the cloud feedback one is so big <laughs> it's because yeah, the it's error so, bar is like yeah you know off the screen yeah 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 because it's so multi-scale and so specific mm-hmm. and that leads me to kind of my next question about often in climate science let's say we have an understanding of a process, like a kind of local process or a relatively smaller scale process. And then what 
some folks try to do is to get those things into climate models in some way, some representation of that process in the climate models so that we can ask questions and quantifiably address questions like, oh, what's gonna to happen to this under different emission scenarios into the future? So I don't have a good sense. Um, the effects you're talking about, are they in some of the climate models or how does your field you know, deal with making climate projections over something that is so multi-scale and complicated? Yeah, so they, they are, um, <clears throat> like during my time in grad school, was when there was um, a lot of interest in including these in climate models. And so I think most of the major climate models now include all of these aerosol effects. Now, how good they are um, is still like super, super uh, debatable. And also yeah. like the word good is kind of, you know, what does that mean? Um, right, right. But generally speaking, when we talk about aerosol effects on climate, we're talking about like three um, distinct ways that aerosols in a interact with climate and the third way kind of has an a and a b um part to it so the first way is the direct radiative effect and that's been included in climate models for a while um that's just direct absorption of insulation of sunlight um solar radiation by aerosols in like kind of a clear sky um so you can think of the direct radiative, radiative effect oh, it can also be absorption or reflection depending um on the type of aerosol but it's kind of the direct interaction with with radiation and so Generally speaking, the direct radiative effect cools the surface because it's kind mm -hmm. of like putting an additional cloud in the way. Um, and those are, those are, that effect is, is the most well understood of the aerosol effects and has been included in climate models for a while and I would say is fairly robust. Um, the semi-direct radiative effect is related. It deals with, you know, the interception of radiation by aerosols, but the impact on the climate, the surface temperature, shall we say, or like the precipitation, is actually from the cloud itself, right? So it's not the aerosols, uh, it's kind of complicated, right? But it's like the aerosols absorb the sunlight, they, they do this whole lapse rate modification thing, they heat the mid-layer of the, of the troposphere, um, and then this reduces the cloud cover, and so with reduced cloud cover, you get a warmer surface, theoretically, right? And so this would have a warming effect on the climate, whereas the direct radiative effect typically has a cooling effect on the surface, um, and kind of a mixed effect on the atmosphere. Then you've got the radiative effect, uh, and that semi-direct effect is now kind of included in climate models as well. And I think it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty reasonably well um, represented. Then you've got yeah. the indirect effects, which Ellick probably knows a lot about too, because if, if they study clouds, um, this, is like a, this is like the big uh, question mark. Um, so indirectly, um, aerosols can change the droplet size um, of clouds and either make them brighter uh, or usually make them brighter. Um, and so this would have potentially, <clears throat> excuse me, a cooling effect on the surface really dependent on like what type of cloud. Um, so if it's a low cloud, fairly well understood. If it's a cumulus cloud or a high cloud, not as well understood. Um, mm -hmm. And so this indirect effect uh, there are some representations of it in climate models, but I think it's the least um, understood and the least well represented. Yeah, still lots yeah, of... for sure. I mean, that's in fact what I'm working on <laughs> to oh, try really? and get it better in in high in high clouds at the moment. Thanks. Interesting. Yeah, Thanks. using yeah. a completely different scale of model. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. When oh, I was but... in when I was in grad school and my and my postdoc, I was working with the American. Um, CESM, the the one the model that's run out of NCAR. Yeah. And I think they do now have all three kind of 
aerosol radiative effects included in the model. Um, I don't, I can't speak necessarily to all of the climate models that exist yeah, yeah. in the world. There's like 30 of them or something yeah. or more. That's but. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. If you knew about all of them, I'd be, I'd be impressed and a little, a little concerned also. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Someone's a CMIPS encyclopedia. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my pandemic, my pandemic adventure is like figuring out whether the radio effects are in all the, con no, oh my God. Could you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please, please tell me. You've you, had another yeah. project. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, uh, Ella, you've got a deadline, so you need to get out at some point. So I was wondering, should we talk about your work at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago? Would that be? Sure. Yeah, yeah, whatever you guys want to talk about. That would be I've great. Had my coffee and I'm good. I'm ready. So nice. Excellent. Yeah. So you moved to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago as a professor, and one of the the reasons that you decided, um, if I can kind of paraphrase, was that you feel like that artists can teach us a lot about how to communicate about climate change with the public, that you had some concerns that we're generating all this climate knowledge, we're doing all this work, and the concern is that it's kind of staying behind this, this wall. Not intentionally, we're not trying to keep it from anyone, we're just not especially that great at really getting it out there into the world. Um, so I'd be interested to hear about your transition to that school and how you found it and in what ways you're plugging into this collaboration with artists to try to communicate science better. Yeah, totally. I mean, this is, it's been a really interesting past four years, um, not least because um, of this move to the Art Institute, but uh, I, uh, it's, it all started in 2016. I was feeling pretty restless. I was working at the Jet Propulsion Lab, JPL in um, Pasadena, doing this cloud and aerosol research and very much enjoying it, but very much feeling like I, um, I don't know, I was having like climate anxiety, maybe like climate change anxiety. And I was like, I need to do something uh, that's not like uh, sitting at this desk in, in an interior office at JPL. like. Yeah, plugging away. And so I, I started looking for jobs and I saw this um, position open up at the School of the Art Institute. And I was like, well, that's weird. And I'd never been to Chicago. And I was like, but I don't know if I can do the winter. So we'll see. And then I got an interview and uh, <laughs> I got an interview and I went and I was like, uh, um, I was really into it, actually. They could, they sold me. They totally sold me. Mm. Um, they said, like, it, it, it seemed like a really cool opportunity. They had four full-time scientists already working at the school, um, not climate scientists, but just scientists, I guess. Briefly, like, it's an accredited university, and so the students have to take these, um, what, what I call, like, regular classes, academic classes, let's say, yeah. that are not, like, fine art studio classes. Um, and so they, instead of outsourcing them to the community colleges or to other colleges, they decided to sort of beef up their liberal arts department. So we have many full-time historians and philosophers and, and, and English and writing professors and scientists. And it's actually very cool. Um, so I was totally sold. And then, um, but I was a little bit, you know, sad about uh, leaving JPL. I thought I love, I love and still continue to love LA um, where I was living. Um, and I was participating in this field campaign in 2016, which is when I was offered the job. So I was like, let me go on this field campaign and then maybe I'll start at SAIC after. Um, so I went on this field campaign in the summer. I came back. Donald Trump was elected president. And I was like, I have to go. 
to, <laughs> I, I must go to SAIC. I have to do this. It's, mm. it's urgent. It's important. This is the perfect yeah. opportunity to make this life change. I also, um, you know, as a trans woman, I um, started my transition around this time too. There was just a lot of urgency in 2016 for me. I was like, yeah. I'm an anxiety, my gender, Donald Trump. Like I was like, oh, the world is like, you know. A lot of big things there. <laughs> so I came to SAIC and, uh, and yeah, and then I kind of shifted gears and started thinking about the ways that artists and, um, and designers can, can, can improve not just our communication of climate change, but also the way in which we actually conduct science and uh, construct scientific knowledge. Um, so actually this podcast is like perfect timing because I'm about to submit a manuscript finally summarizing kind of all this work that I've been doing for the last two and a half years, thinking about these ways. And I'm, I think it's going to be really cool and I love talking about it, honestly. Um, so there's like so much to go into, but I do think artists have... Um, and it hugely can play a hugely important role, both in communication and in production of knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I think it was such a fascinating thing. Oh, sorry. sorry to interject. It just, it's so often seems to be one way though, like as in, hey, we need to take this approach from art or design or whatever um, sort of creative industry it is and adapt it for science. Whereas I think it sounds to me like from your work, you're doing much more of a collaborative Absolutely. dialogue. Absolutely. So you're, you're both benefiting mm -hmm. at both parties. And that's, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I like to call it radical collaborations um, be mm -hmm. between artists and scientists. Nice. I think, I think, yeah, you nailed it totally. Is that, after speaking with a lot of artists, uh, my students and colleagues, um, because you know the one thing about being a scientist and then being thrown into the art institute is that while I am still teaching science, like my courses are science courses, I teach numbers and science to art students. It's very cool, um, but I am like in the art world, very much immersed in the mm -hmm. art world, which means I had to learn a whole new language um, to to communicate with artists because they just you know as as scientists like we have our own language, we have our own way of communicating with each other. Artists also have their own yeah, way of communicating. Kind of so, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, <laughs> and so, a whole different language of jargon to learn well. Jargon, <laughs> language, everything. And so once I did, once I was able to sort of communicate with them, um, the thing that I heard the most was that artists are, are really interested in being engaged with science actually. Um, but that they often feel slighted by science, you know, capital S science TM, the industry, if you will, to being relegated to, like you said, Ella, these, um, like the whole project is done. And then they're like, hey, can you make this graph prettier for me or something? Yeah. Right? Or can you make this <laughs> yeah. image like into an infographic that someone can understand? And while artists are often going to take those jobs and often going to do that stuff, because I do think that they are, they're really like morally committed to solutions to the climate crisis, what I heard the most was that they wish they could have been involved in the process from the beginning. Um, wow. That this could have been a collaborative uh, project and and that they could have, uh, you know, influenced both the scientific process and also the dissemination of the results from a much earlier stage than like, oh, here's my results. Can you like make them look good? You yeah, know? Yeah. And I think that this actually comes down to scientists not really understanding what artists do. Um, 
personally. And I can say this because I've, I've done a lot of growing and learning on this subject, but before I came to the Art Institute, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, I get like, maybe this is gonna sound really bad and maybe I'll get like a bunch of comments, but I just didn't think artists were really that smart in tune with like the, the science in tune with the, you know, but they are, they're incredibly astute. They're incredibly smart. They do research just like scientists do research. They produce works that are brilliant and engaging and like accessible. And so, and some are inaccessible, you know, too. But, uh, but I think that uh, scientists have this idea, you know, I, I'm always reminded like you go to a, a museum, let's say, and you see, some sort of abstracted um, piece of art. And a lot of thing, times I hear scientists and other people say, like, I could have made that. And it's like, no, that's not really how this works. Uh, something that I've learned from being at the Art Institute is that art is as much the thing that was made as it is the process that was used to make it, which is exactly science, right? Science is both your results and the methods that you got there with. And so there's actually so many similarities that I was like, this is a, a, a ripe opportunity for collaboration that we can learn a lot from each other yeah all in the service of solving the climate crisis i wonder if we can get a little more specific there do you have is there an, an example you could give us or is there um yeah i don't know is there something that we could dig into because i think I, I have some sense of what you're talking about but i feel like i want to grapple onto it a little bit more yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> of course I do. Um, <laughs> so this will, uh, th some of the projects that I've been working on like over the years um, really grapple with this question. And so before I get to those, I think um, a really broad kind of example that I use a lot um, is uh, science fiction literature. So mm. science fiction, and especially I'm particularly like having a moment with Octavia Butler's um, science fiction works which deal with and sort of more broadly Afrofuturism as like an as like a way of art making as like an art production medium um and and uh and, ba and basically the idea here is that uh the human imagination is amazing it's mm -hmm. uh it's it's we are able to imagine so many things and um the what better way to capture like the human imagination and to kind of like provoke the human imagination than with art. Um, and I'm using yeah. art really broadly here as like just a creative output, um, excuse me, like an art object, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, like uh, Parable of the Sower, for example, which is one of Octavia Butler's probably more famous, well-known works, finally reached the New York Times bestseller this year. And I think a lot of it probably has to do with the fact that we're in this sort of like apocalyptic uh, situation and and her novels as well as many other Afrofuturist works of art um, both are fictional like narratives they're science fiction but they also have this vision of the future this like liberated vision of the future which I think is like necessary if we are to ever have a liberated future if we are to ever have a future where we've solved climate change where we've solved all these problems we have to mm -hmm. imagine first right we have to yeah. we have to get there first before we can build it and i yeah. think scientists sometimes are really bad they think about the building it step first but they never think about the imagination step yeah yeah i'm reminded of a couple of things one of them is i mean it's maybe a little bit cliche or well known but you know that was one of the things einstein used to talk about was how important imagination was 
to, to him and to his science. He's like, no, I have, I have to start with imagination. That's the beginning. Just, yeah. you know, yeah, picture, picture destination, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely different realities. And, and I uh, think science has become so like uh, production based mm. or, you know, I like to say that like this, we're in kind of a post enlightenment scientific moment right now where scientists are often producing science for other scientists. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and 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 that's fine. I think I think I think uh, scientific knowledge is like really important, and that we should keep pushing on these things. But I also think we have like some there's some urgency with the climate crisis, and I think that um, we we have to we have to figure it out. And so so one of the things I really talk about a lot in all my public lectures and in this paper that I'm about to submit is that the scientific method, which I'm putting in air quotes because it's not really a thing, right? But it's typically mm. kind of thought of as you have a hypothesis where you're kind of looking at data, you're looking at scenarios and you're kind of coming up with a question and then you test that hypothesis and then you can have some conclusion, right? That's not all that different than like, for example, the design process or the art making process where you have a bunch of like ideations and then you have some prototyping and then you have a refined product. The difference is that both art and design begin with a, a, a really important human engagement step, a contextual inquiry, like talking to actual people. Like, what do you want? Like, what are your yeah. concerns? What, is, what are you imagining for this thing that we're designing or that we're making? Um, and that step, I think, has been lost from the scientific method in a way. Like, there's just not a lot of engagement with stakeholders there's not a lot of you know contextual inquiry with like actual human beings and so i argue that the, the the most important thing that scientists can learn from artists is that we should talk to people more, <laughs> more. <laughs> sounds you know? like a really good piece of advice <laughs> i'm really interested actually in like what that sort of as you said, radical collaboration, what that process looks like. Do you sit down and talk together? Is it a very kind of integrated thing? Is it one-on-one? -on -one? What does that look like? Yeah, okay, so a good example that I have um, is uh, two, three, two and a half years ago, um, I started this project with the design team at, at JPL. So I was at SAIC, but I was working kind of, um, part-time with uh, JPL and um, and this is like a full circle full circle moment of our conversation here but um, <laughs> we, we have this database of wildfire smoke plumes um, that we've created using a software that I helped design while I was at JPL which kind of uses our satellite um, to estimate how high in the atmosphere the smoke goes and we've got this database of like thousands and thousands and thousands of smoke plumes that that scientists and anyone could go and download and then um, answer questions with, do, do climate research with, blah, blah, blah. The thing is, nobody was using it. And so mm -hmm. we were like, why? And I think that the main reason is because the data are so abstruse and difficult to access and the interface to access them was like so confusing and so mm. complicated. So we, we said, okay, let's scrap the whole thing and like, let's sit down with the design team and let's like do this over. Yeah, because yeah, you go to some of these websites, you know, it's like just eight, just kind of plain HTML, lots of tiny hyperlinks all over the place, acronyms, just a wall of acronyms everywhere, <laughs> basically. Like <laughs> Acronyms are really like a NASA specialty, you know, like it's like, uh, 
Oh, acronym yes. after acronym, a whole sentence of acronyms. <laughs> yeah, and compounded. They're like nested. There's acronyms within other acronyms. And, yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. They really so, are. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> redesigning. The, yeah, let's scrap that. Let's redesign it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we and so you know we we started. Um, yeah, we we worked with these designers and we worked through like what I was just describing, where we did this like human engagement, contextual inquiry, and then we had iterations with scientists. And the end result was, yes, like a, a really aesthetic, um, much improved um, interface for the data. Um, but then I took it a step further, and this is what I've been working with my, with my uh, designer friend, um, Adrian Galvin, who I'll give a little shout out to because he's brilliant and, and so helpful. Um, we were like, can we, does this actually work? Like, did this actually improve the science that can be done? And so, you know, we sat, we sat down with several scientists, and obviously this wasn't like a, a thorough you know, sociological study here, but social science, but we looked at how the interface itself influenced the way that the scientists interacted with the data initially. The big takeaway is that it removed this like intimidation. It removed the, cause you know, when you log on to one of these websites and you're like, I really want to answer this question, but first I actually have to learn, uh, you know, how to download these data in my like Linux terminal. And I just feel like it introduces this whole layer of like knowledge that takes away time and effort and energy and motivation from the actual science questions that you want to ask. And so yeah. I think sometimes when you have this like easier to access interface, um, you remove some of that and then you get to just do the science, right? You get to do the, you get to ask the scientific questions. And so what this taught me was that um, design and art um, are not only valuable in like you know the the ultimate communication of these results but actually like the production of them like the asking of mm. questions like are you even asking the questions that you should be asking and stuff like that you know and so it's this has replicated it with my students as well who um, for their final projects in all my classes I have them take um, a climate change impact or, or something that's, you know, an environmental disaster. And then I have them, you know, do research on it, create an art object on it. And then we look at that art, art object together and we think about it. And, and, and that then in turn influences like what questions I'm going to ask, you know, what questions that the scientist who's viewing this might be like, I never thought of it that way before. And now I'm going to ask this other new question. And, and that might actually be in better service to um, ultimately solving the climate crisis. I know that this sounds probably really abstract, so if you need- No, but inspiring alternative perspectives and like a fresh set of eyes and a fresh approach to something is so useful yeah. because I mean, so much in science, we follow the same rules all the time, same angle all the time. Yeah. And just having, the opportunity to think about something from a completely different way, mm -hmm. I bet yeah. is amazing. And when uh, I just got this picture in my head of, you know, we often work with this set of tools which aren't necessarily very intuitive. I mean, I, I like command line stuff pretty pretty reasonably. It's powerful, you know, the command line is powerful, but it, it, it can be intimidating. And I'm always having to look up commands. So I just got this picture in my head of the kind of, typical toolbox of scientists is a bit 
it's a bit jumbled, right? It's a bit messy. There's wrenches of different sizes and you got to kind of jam your hand in there to pull out, you know, exactly what you, <laughs> what you want. Mm-hmm. And versus you could imagine a totally different way of laying out all your tools in this beautiful interface and kind of, you know, right where everything is. And, you know, under which one of those circumstances do you feel more creative and uh, imaginative and inspired? You know, when you got to dig through your toolbox and avoid the rusty, you know, like edges of it, or, or when you have this beautiful layout and you can, it makes yeah. it easier to kind of plug into it and, and get excited about it, I think. Or it's like, you know, if you can't see a quick maybe visualization of the data or abstraction of the data, um, you may download all these data, um, spend two days writing a Python script to like remove mm-hmm. the text header. And then by the time you get it into like an etcdf file where you can graph it, you're like, oh shit, like these are not even the data I wanted. But if you could do that in an interface oh. and say like, oh, Actually, I don't want to ask this question anymore. You've just saved like a week, you know, or more. Yeah. Um, and oh, then, so useful. That's right. You know, it's, just, right. it's stuff like that where like maybe you could eliminate some of the questions that, because I think sometimes, you know, scientists, we go into things and we're like, this is a great question. And then we start looking at it and we're like, actually, this was dumb. Like I shouldn't have, <laughs> shouldn't have asked this question and I shouldn't yeah. have done this. If there was a way that you could have imagined it differently at the beginning, then maybe you would have asked a different yeah. question and that yeah. would have ultimately been in service of, you know, the outcome that we're desiring, which is yeah. in my case, you know, not devastating climate change. Yeah. I mean, that's a good call for all of us to work towards. <laughs> I'm imagining writing grant proposals and, you know, often like that process would be much more efficient if you really could quickly get a sense of, is this feasible? Is this, you know, should I actually write a proposal to spend the next two or three years, you know, really digging into this? Whereas uh, sometimes it feels like even establishing that takes so much work and we're probably wasting a lot of, you know, human time just trying to even understand if things are feasible or not. Totally. And not to mention like, is the work that you've done accessible? I mean, like not all scientific knowledge needs to be necessarily accessible to everyone. Oftentimes, I think we do want our science to have like a wide reach. And, um, you know, I'm just, I just wrote a proposal actually with some um, art and design folks at uh, the University of Illinois in Chicago. And, uh, you know, art, there's this incredible data set of like um, Chicago temperature and precipitation, and humidity, all these data, like in each of these neighborhoods, like a very, very, very fine high resolution data set. Um, but <clears throat> we thought like, how amazing if like actually residents in Pilsen could like access these data and like understand these data. Um, it might influence like pop political action. It might influence like, you know, um, how people talk about these things, but the data are just so, it's like so cumbersome to even yeah. approach them, you know? And so it's like, uh, what do people want? What do people need? Not that that always has to be the case, but like, you know, it can go a long way. Thing. I'm reminded of um, in Bremerhaven, Germany, this is a little bit more just on the science communication sort of side, but in Bremerhaven, there's a, a climate house, the, it's a climate museum, you know, it's a whole, so you go in and there's, for example, one of the things I remember is a, a slide. So the slide has both 
temperatures. It's like a slide you can climb on and kind of play on. It's got temperatures, a representation of temperature, and it's kind of representation of CO2. So it's a physical object you can interact with that demonstrates that kind of shows that relationship between the two things. So it makes it something more concrete. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't remember the specific example, but I feel like I've seen examples of pieces of art that are physical objects that respond to something in the real world. You know, maybe it's the size of a particular glacier or something that shows the, the tides, some small sculpture that kind of is remotely connected to some other data set, some other real-time data set. Yeah. yeah, something to make. Yeah, these. I have like, no, sorry, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Oh yeah, sorry, just gonna say uh, something to make the abstractness of, of climate change, the abstractness of planetary change a little bit more concrete and tactile and something you can interact with potentially. Yeah, I've got a student actually. So, um, and this is also kind of will be written up in the is written up in the manuscript. But I have a student who um, took the recording that uh, of Jimi Hendrix performing the Star Spangled Banner at the 1969 Woodstock Fair, and he modified the sound of it with a sinusoidal curve of carbon dioxide emissions uh, or carbon dioxide accumulation in the atmosphere. So it becomes uh, increasingly dysphonic and louder and softer based on that as you go through kind of the the uh, the song. And so it's really cool because it's there's so many layers. Like first of all, the Star Spangled Banner, we all know like how how um, implicated the United States is in the carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. Um, <clears throat> it was in 19, it was at Woodstock, you know, which is kind of this um, emblematic of this sort of like leftist kind of rebellion against kind of conservative ideas, um, which many of which have led us to this crisis to begin with. It's also like um, he, he used the data set from 1969 through 2019. So it's like a 50 year data set. And it's like uh, already kind of a dysphonic recording. There's a lot of politics involved and it's just so cool. Um, and then there's also like tons of science. Like he took this um, like concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, applied this fast Fourier transform to it, converted it into like a sinusoidal curve and then laid that on top of the sonic um, sound of the song and it's just like so brilliant and I just feel like you just listen to it and you're like um automatically thinking about all these things you're automatically thinking about the carbon dioxide atmosphere you're thinking about the politics of the 60s and like why we're here now when we knew about climate change so long ago like you know there's just so many layers to to it and so that's, that's like amazing, a really good yeah. example yeah I was wondering that's made me think I saw on your uh, on your website that you did a uh, another collaboration with was it techno artists yeah I mean, as as a massive fan of electronic <laughs> and dance music, massive Gabba head, um, that sounds really really cool. Yeah, um, oh my god, me too. I'm so, I'm like a huge techno um, techno fan, and I'm so sad this pandemic. I haven't been able to go to any yeah. live music, but anyway, um, yeah, it's cool. I had a student. Actually, I'm I'm really like over, overwhelmingly interested in sonic representations um, of of climate data. I think there's been a lot done on the visual side, but I think there's like a lot of room for the, the sound side of things um, and techno music in particular. So we had a really cool panel, um, like a Zoom panel earlier in the, actually last year in 2020 in the summer, um, where we had several DJs who talked about um, the role of techno music in uh, fighting the climate crisis. And we went through kind of a deep history of the politics of techno and how techno and and um, and house, especially you know, being in Chicago, kind of the birthplace of Chicago house, and 
being close to Detroit, which is like kind of thought of as like the birthplace of now and many of these, um, <clears throat> like many of the communities that kind of popularized this and, and, and spearheaded this, these, these types of music were like um, black and brown and queer, um, which have vested like political interests, both, you know, um, in the climate crisis and not, but, um, you know, I'm thinking specifically like the South side of Chicago with the Chicago house and how South side of Chicago is really like epicenter of the environmental racism conversation and how, um, you know, these communities on the South side of Chicago just, you know, they dump like the waste from the refineries there. They put freeways right through their neighborhoods, like the, the air quality is worse, the asthma incidence is are higher. And so I think techno just like as a political movement and house as a political movement really um, is synthesized well with, with um, climate change uh, in general. And then there's also kind of the, the, the like, literal side of it which is that you know what's being used to make music and like is it environmentally friendly you know there are all these things and like does techno music like evoke a response in people and like i would say it does you know <laughs> and um you know could that be done with climate change in mind and so we actually um we had two two chicago djs um who we who we had on this panel and they made mixes uh, which are both available to listen to on SoundCloud that are kind of like inspired by the climate crisis and all that. And I think it's just really cool to be like synthesizing these two things, which are kind of like my two loves in life, which is techno music. And <laughs> yeah, it's interesting as well. I've really made that connection before between climate justice and those sorts of elements. And then, because I mean, techno and dance music has historically been quite a force for change and radical and it's because it's so underground mm -hmm. and against the mainstream I'm thinking about the the 90s rave scene going against the um legislation in both Holland and the UK and places like that where people who like dance music were always sort of ostracized because they were so against what in quotes society stood for mm -hmm. so i think it's a really interesting instrument to to look at something like that because resistance to climate change and resistance to you know societal norms or mm -hmm. pushing the envelope of what's considered acceptable is yeah it's such an interesting overlap and i just thought that was absolutely fascinating can you say yeah. a little bit more about that what was happening with you, you mentioned pushing back against legislation in the 90s in the uk um, yeah, so in, I guess in the nine, I think 94 it was, um, the UK government introduced this legislation that essentially stopped any music with repetitive beats being performed um, nice. in specifically to, because there was a whole free party rave scene, which <laughs> was embraced by young people who were politically liberal and who were trying, well, resisting you know the strictures of conservative society um and those people who had vested interest in that conservative society did not like that <laughs> so they tried to shut down all the parties and um criminalize it essentially Ugh. criminal justice act it was called yeah and they did the same thing in holland because in holland gabba and techno and hardcore were very um, big in the 90s as well and they did a very similar thing because they 
I guess the establishment recognized the the power, the transformational power of young people seizing on a musical movement that represents them. Wow. Yeah, and I, I think there's also like a layer of, I have to say this as a queer person, but I think there's like a layer of queer antagonism too. Like um, I'm reminded of like in Chicago, it's not exactly parallel to that, but um, in like 1977, 78, um, there was a big demonstration where they burned all of these disco records in um, Comiskey Park, White Sox, where the White Sox play. Um, the, it was kind of like more right wing type people burned all these disco records because they were kind of gay. You know, it was like kind of gay. It was kind of it was too lefty or whatever. So uh, literally out of those ashes, um, metaphor intended, uh, rose house music, um, Chicago house music as like a form of resistance, like no, like you can't take this away from us like this, you know? Um, and a lot of early house uh, tracks are actually just disco tracks like sped up and layered with like um, a more kind of throbbing beat to them. But um, there's, a, there's a long history of like queerness and just like general like leftist politics, like anti-war queer, like, you know, pro, um, Defiance. Yeah, defiance. Yeah, exactly. And so um, translating that to now when it's, when it, you know, I think a lot of us would agree that the existential um, crisis of our time is really like, like climate change um, and all of the ways, the intersectional ways that that impacts everything. Um, there's so many parallels. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't know that about the UK, though. That's super interesting. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. <laughs> I didn't either. No, yeah, all, all the ways that the people in power panic and try to shut down anything that they consider vaguely threatening. Uh, it's really the thing that always kind of cuts through that, though, is art, right? Like art is mm. always able to capture the imagination. Here we are back, you know, the imagination of people across yes. the political spectrum. And so that's why I think art is such a useful kind of like tool or medium or however you want to say it to like these things. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I love this chat so much. This is great. I'm just, I'm just having a blast listening to to you two and chiming in. This is great. Um, yeah, I'm having a great time. Now <laughs> it's I so fascinating. Listen, now I want to listen to some techno music. Though I'm gonna have to. I know. Should we them. just put it on? <laughs> <laughs> the last twenty minutes will just be like a, a mix. Yeah. Rave up, yeah. So how did yeah. you how did you come to be in the place that you are? I mean, you gave us a little bit of uh, a sort of background of how you went from LA to Chicago, but how did you find yourself in LA in the first place? Oh, yeah. How did I find myself in L.A.? That's a good question. I guess, like, you know, um, I was born and I spent my childhood in Connecticut, um, uh, which, you know, is uh, whatever. Um, I, I it's was, a state. I, it is one state. of the states. <laughs> it's, <one of> the, <laughs> it's a state in the United States, yep. Um, it's, uh, I, I, you know, as a as a little kid, I was always, like, super nerdy about the weather i have charts still from like when i was in third grade of like me tracking all the hurricanes in the atlantic ocean oh. um you know hand drawn i've got like <clears throat> um spreadsheets and 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 hand drawn things of like when we had heat waves and when we had cold snaps and so i was always really interested in this and so um when i when i was looking for you know what what i wanted to do when i grew up so to speak um i was like i definitely want to do something with the with the weather but um but i i 
I went to the University of Connecticut for my undergrad and um, they didn't have like a degree in meteorology. So, which, you know, is fine. I was like, it's in state at the tuition's low. I was paying for it myself. And so I was like, uh, you know, we'll figure it out. And um, while I was there, I took a class. They had a class on meteorology and they had a department like natural resources um, and engineering or something like that. Natural Resources Management and Engineering was the department. And one of the um, grad students who was working in that department was teaching a class on meteorology. And so I took it and I was like, this is amazing. I still have the book from it in my office, like from like, you know, 2003, I think, or something. Um, and, uh, and so I went up to her after the class and I was like, do you need anyone like to help you with your research? Um, and she said, yeah. And so I... Um, I did some undergraduate research. Basically, she was looking at like, uh, I'm gonna, I, I don't know if I should say, because I probably can't remember the specific details of it, but her name was April Hiscox, and she still has like, you know, she's still doing this research. I think she's like a, a professor uh, in Louisiana or something like that. Um, I'm, I'm sure I got all of that wrong. But anyway, basically, <laughs> she was looking at gravity waves over a forest canopy, and um, she she had, a she had constructed a large tower that went above the canopy. And so my job as an undergraduate researcher was to climb up the tower <laughs> and like make sure that the anemometer and the, the temperature thermocouples and everything were operating correctly and that the data were downloading correctly. And then she did a lot like give me an opportunity to kind of look at the data and, 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 and make some graphs of the data. Um, my senior year, I did um, like a, a thesis I was in like the, the honors program at University of Connecticut. Um, and I did my thesis on like winter snowfall in New England. And I was like, I think I want to do this. Like, I think I want to study this. I feel like this is a big deal. I feel like climate change is a big deal. And so I uh, talked to a bunch of people at the school and they were like, you should um, look at uh, graduate school programs. And I um, looked around and I found um, a program at, uh, University of California, Irvine, UCI, and uh, it looked really cool. And I emailed my my, my soon-to-be advisor, and I was like, I think I want to do this. And he said, you should apply. And I applied to one graduate school, and I got into that one, and I went there, and I that's that's what happened. <laughs> I, uh, I, yeah, I, like, started doing work at UCI. I had no idea what I was doing. I was, like, 22 years old, and I was like, I want to do something about this. It seems like a big problem. <laughs> Yeah. And, um, it was cool. honestly really cool. The, the, the program at UCI is amazing. Um, it's like one of the first programs that brought together the different disciplines of earth science, let's say. So it was like there was hydrologists and there were oceanographers and atmospheric mm. scientists and climate modelers and uh, paleoclimatologists and everything really, like atmospheric chemists. So it was super cool and I got to take all these classes and I was like, this is definitely what I want to do. Um, so you've always been somewhat interdisciplinary. Yeah. I was gonna mm -hmm. say that. That sounds like. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. I mean, that was a big draw for the program for me was that it was interdisciplinary, that, I, that it was, um, cause I didn't know, you know, I was like, I don't know, I wanna like save the world, you know, I'm a millennial. Yeah. So. <laughs> I was like, I, I wanna save the yeah, world. Of course. <laughs> Oh, that's really cool. That's really exciting. Yeah. Um, it was really well, cool. 
And uh, so Ella, I know you've got to go. So I want to make sure I give you an opportunity, like anything else you want to ask I mean, we We've got another like 20 minutes, so we're not like urgently yeah. running out of time, but I want to make sure, you know, that you feel comfy and have had, you know, a chance to ask everything you want to ask. I've ticked my techno box, <laughs> ticked my cloud box. I'm going to have to send and, you yeah. some, I'm going to have to send you some, some, some good techno SoundCloud, SoundCloud mixes. Cause like, Please do. Yeah. I, I would love to hear those mixes you were talking about. Oh yeah, for sure. I'll send you, um, I'll send you the ones from our panel as well. Yeah. One, one of the DJs, um, Ariel Zatina, I don't know, you, maybe you've heard of her. She's from Chicago. She's very much like, um, uh, blowing up, I guess you could say. Mm. I think she's, I think she's like just really phenomenal and has a lot to say about yeah. both techno and like the world, you know. And and is also a trans woman, which you know I love. So <laughs> yeah. If you like, um, if we remember in in the right time, I can put that on the tweet and stuff like when i promote the episode and things we can put those soundcloud like if there's playlists and things we could we could tack those onto there that would be a good good addition i think um so one of the things that i did want to ask a little bit about and i want to put the ball in your court and say we can talk as much or as little about this part as you like but i was wondering if there was more that we could do in the science community to kind of support people with different gender expressions know like how are we doing right now are there things we could be doing better um that's that's one side of the perspective right and then the other perspective i guess would be if you had advice or things to say to people who um maybe were going through some gender exploration trying to figure out themselves in relation to this big professional field that that we're in whether they're students or more advanced or whatever so i'll kind of give you those two um possible angles but the ball's totally in your court, you know, as much or as little as you, as you feel like, I'm very happy with, uh, to let you take the lead there. For sure. Yeah. I, um, I do have a lot to say on that. I think, mm. um, you know, I think something that's really, uh, interesting, maybe interesting is not the right word, but something that I hear a lot is that, um, you know, gender, sexuality, politics, whatever you, you know, you shouldn't bring that into your, into your work. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't bring that into your research. And I just like vehemently disagree. I think that's um, something that like a white man would say, um, a straight white man would say. And I, the reason is that the involves a political. Our connection. <laughs> oh, sorry. Our connection was bad for a second. Sorry. I think we're back now. Oh, okay. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, you're still here. You're still um, here. <laughs> yeah, so I guess uh, I'll just say that again. I think like something that I hear a lot is that um, you shouldn't bring your your queerness or your gender or your your politics or your race or whatever into your work. And I just I just disagree so strongly with that because I think the apolitical kind of like what people accept as being like apolitical default is like this like cis straight white man right but that actually is an identity that's not not an identity but it's become Mm. like a non-identity is if you're a white man so then if you have another identity um you're told like you're being too political if you you think about it um Mm. but it's like why you know like my identity informs my work it informs how i view the world it informs 
um, <clears throat> the questions I ask, the, the, the data I look at, the, the way in which I approach this. And so I think like my, the thing, the big holistic message that I would, that I would love to, to get across is that we have to stop pretending. We have to stop saying that science is, is apolitical, unbiased, because actually it's, or divorced from identity, because it's not, it is actually like, it's mm. the identity of the scientist is like a cis straight white man. And, um, you know, and that has informed the way that science has been conducted for millennia. Um, I'm always drawn to uh, a tweet that I saw by, by Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, who I know maybe has been like sort of canceled. There's, I, it's hard, some, I don't know what, there's some problems. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where we are with that, but I still think the tweet was good. And it said that we probably could have solved climate change if we had allowed women to participate in the same way that men participate in the scientific endeavor for the last several hundred years. And while I don't know that that's like necessarily true, it really makes me think that like the way we've approached science, the way we've approached the production of scientific knowledge and the dissemination of scientific knowledge has always been driven by one identity, which is that of the like straight white man. Um, and, you know, I'm definitely sounding like a social ju social justice warrior here, which is not my intention. My intention is really just that all identities are really important. And actually, you can you can achieve so much more um, knowledge. You can produce so much more knowledge. You can achieve so much more dissemination of knowledge when you include other people um, with other identities in that process. And it's like we were saying with the art thing, like if you bring a different perspective, you're going to ask different questions. You're going to have a different set of eyes on the problem and if you were an artist you'd probably be embracing that identity difference mm -hmm. and putting that into your work and that would be very much acceptable and encouraged whereas mm -hmm. in science it's this we're very objective but no of course you can't be everything is subjective the entire way you do everything is subjective yeah. and you can't yeah. remove your humanity from anything you do exactly so yeah i always say like science is we like to think that science is that science is the pursuit of truth, and while I do kind of agree with that overriding message, um, it's also driven by humans. It's conducted by human beings, and there's always going to be, you know, the human like identity and other politics and whatever as part of that. And so I think that, um, you know, from a really broad sense, I would just love for for the kind of image of a scientist, let's say, to stop being like a white dude, mm -hmm. you know, not in a lab coat, <laughs> in a lab coat, an old straight, mm -hmm. you know, uh, cis white man. You know, it's 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 very much like uh, I teach in my class about. Um, I have an environmental disasters class, and I teach about um, nuclear power, nuclear energy, and the, and the atomic uh, weapons. Uh, you know, the invention of and, and deployment of, and uh, one story I always tell is that um, the reaction that um, produces, you know, the energy, the, the um, <clears throat> excuse me, nuclear fission reaction um, was kind of discovered by these two guys that were just like bumbling around in a chemistry lab, but it was explained by a woman um, who was actually in exile from Germany because she was Jewish. This was in the 30s. Um, and she gets almost no, no credit for this, um, but she really wrote the physics paper of her nephew, mm -hmm. probably because he was a man. Um, 
you know, but oftentimes uh, these other people get credit for it. Hang on, I'm sorry, my dog is like barking because he's mad that he's not in the room, so I'm just gonna let him come up. <laughs> oh yeah, no worries. I, well, on that note, I don't know if it's picking up on the recording. My son's having a very loud Minecraft game downstairs, so it's possible that <laughs> people might be hearing just the edges of that. <laughs> so don't worry, there's plenty of, of noise around. That, but you can say hi to my dog, there he is. Oh, hello. Is that a knitted jumper? It oh is, gosh. yeah. <laughs> Please tell me you, you knitted that. <laughs> no, I didn't. But my, my partner works at a, a pet supply shop, and so um, that's where we got it from. We always ha- He always has the best and finest um, dog attire. Best regalia, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. That's um, amazing. Yeah, but to, I mean, to, to elaborate more on your question, I think there are mm-hmm. some concrete ways that, like, the scientific kind of industry or whatever can the, the field of science can can support trans people and and that sort of thing which is like um <clears throat> just like being understanding and like being open-minded and being ready to listen when people say things instead of being mm-hmm. stuck in your ways and yeah this is definitely tied to the art thing you know like yeah. they're 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 one and the same in that like these different perspectives are like so important um i also yeah. will say that for anyone who is like questioning their gender or, or queer or, or thinking about these things like I'm very public about my transition I'm very public about my identity and um, I'm easy to find on Twitter and all of that and I, I welcome messages I welcome messages from people I, I talk to a lot of people every week about this so yeah yeah actually yeah if you don't mind me saying this I hope you don't but uh, you probably won't but you being so open about your transition, because I've been following you for a long time, you know, since since that around the time when we hung out at EGU and then a little bit after that we were talking about at the beginning of the chat. So mm-hmm. seeing you be so open about that, not that this was the point, but this is something I got out of it. So like that opened my heart, uh, seriously, like that was something that, you know, this is somebody I know, here's the specific thing they're going through. And like you were reporting your internal states and you were reporting the things you were going through and like just opened my my mind and my heart up and uh i'm really thankful for that i really appreciate that and uh, that's really nice i appreciate that i'm glad that it was like you know helpful i think that that was my point it's not always been easy necessarily but i think um it's nice to hear that um so thank you that's really sweet Mm -hmm. i i really appreciate that i think you know i'm a i'm a i'm a white person and i have a I have a job and so I think I have a lot of agency to be really open about these things and so I think I like to do that for people who can't be as open for people who can't or don't want to or don't have the agency or the access to be as open because I do think like um for people who can be open and and do the things that I've done um it is really helpful for cis people um and for for non-trans people and so it's nice to hear that because I think like sometimes I'm like, is this getting through? And then every now and then like I'll get a message like that from someone and I'll be like, okay, it is, it is, it is important what I'm doing, even though it's not always yeah. easy. You know? It's about being able to imagine yourself in that role, isn't it? It's, it's saying, hey, um, I can see somebody who looks like me doing that thing. And I never thought that I could do that because, you know, science is so typically heteronormative and white and male. Mm -hmm. And changing that perception is so vital to encourage people of colour and people of different gender identities or different sexualities and 
all sorts of different people rather than just having everyone sit, fit that same mold. And then you're going to get that diversity of approaches in science and self-climate crisis. There we go. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Solution. Uh, and I like to think that I'm... Done, we fixed it. <laughs> I, done, done. No, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I like to think of myself as sort of part of this zeitgeist too. I like, I, I think the more people that are in this moment doing these things, the better it's going to get. And I, I mean, one example that I have is I was invited back to UCI to give a talk um, in the fall. It was virtual. But um, I suggested that we set up like a queer happy hour Zoom with the folks in the department. And um, it was there was like 20 people on that Zoom. And then when I, rem I remember when I was in grad school, I think I was the only queer person that I knew. And that was only like 15 years ago, you know? Yeah. So it's like amazing how a decade um, has really changed the way that uh, science and queerness uh, and gender too, like, you know, um, not just gender identity, not just trans people, but just like, uh, I think women and, 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 and non-binary people in general and the way they participate in the science and the way they're regarded in the scientific process has um, come so far, has so far to go, but has come so far. And I was really, my heart was like really warmed when I like logged into that Zoom and I saw like 20 people in this like queer happy hour, virtual mm -hmm. queer happy hour, like in a pandemic, you know, <laughs> super cool. Yeah, it's amazing. It, it's great that things have developed. I, I often think it's worth reflecting a little bit on how far we've come because it can be easy to lose hope and yeah. then you think hey where were we 15 years ago though it's yeah. definitely better yeah <laughs> no I mean I remember like the 2004 election so viscerally when like you know the Republican Party basically ran on uh banning gay marriage I mean that was like a that was like part of their platform that was like a huge Tenet, and they were able to pass all these like amendments in all these different states in the United States that banned gay marriage. That was in 2004. Now it's like, you know, so different. And so I think it is important to like reflect on that. I think that, I think you're right. I think oftentimes the left, uh, which I consider myself a part of, thinks about ways that we can make the world better, but we never think about ways that we've already kind of made the world a little bit better. And I think it's mm. really important to take stock of that sometimes. Yeah. And it helps you imagining the future, as exactly. we have spoken about already. <laughs> oh, look at that. You tied it all back together in a nice little bow. Ellie, you're, you're good at this. Did you know that? <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's been such a fascinating conversation. I've really, really loved speaking with you and hearing about all the incredible projects you're involved in. So really want to thank you. That's same. same. Blown my mind. Thank you so much yeah. for... for letting me come on and I'm so I'm really glad that I agreed to this uh, podcast I know I was like posting how much I hate podcasts on Twitter and Dan you were like oh no and I was like no it's fine it's just like a spicy hot Twitter take you know it's okay <laughs> yeah so for um just just for context um I, th I think I mentioned this on Twitter too that like I was up front with like for some reason, I'm just, I wasn't really doing that great that week. <laughs> and like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. And I don't, you know, so, cause normally I think I'd be able to see something like that and recognize that like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's just a thing on Twitter. It's fine. You know, relax. But for whatever reason in that moment, that was like, but they're so important and I like them so much. And so just had that I think I was like, reaction to it. I think it was like maybe kind of responding to, um, and this might be an American thing because y'all are in, in the UK. Maybe you're mm -hmm. not as in tune with this, but there was like, there's been like kind of an explosion of like 
leftist men who have podcasts and I find like so many of them to be like both redundant and like annoying. I don't know like how to to necessarily describe well. Um, And like in particular, there was this moment um, at the beginning of the year, this year where like some leftist podcasters were kind of going after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others for like not, it was this very complicated thing which you can research and, and look up easily, you can Google for it. But um, I was just like having a moment where I was like annoyed and I was like, let me just make a spicy take. But then I was like, oh shoot, I agreed to do this podcast. So I guess I better like <laughs> clarify that it's- Take it back. <laughs> directed at all podcasts. It just definitely was like this kind of spicy take, you know, which I am yeah. known for. <laughs> so. Indeed, yeah. Well, it sounds like that a- continue. <laughs> Sounds like a bunch of people were trying to be Mark Marin and probably just not cutting it, yes. I would imagine. <laughs> so yeah, this sounds what that kind of sounds like effectively. Um gosh, thank you so much. This has been so good. Um I've really appreciated it. And um so Ella, I know you've got an appointment like in three minutes, right? So I should probably let sad times, yeah. yeah. Can, can I could stay on all night. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, Mika, can you stay on just a little bit beyond uh, a little bit past six thirty if that's okay? Sure. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. I'd, I'd appreciate that. Um, so anything else? Cool. I know I've kind of said that, but I want to, are we all happy with the episode? Feeling, feeling good. Anything else we want to talk about? No, it feels great. Thank you so much for like, yes, inviting. so it's such a pleasure to meet you. And I hope that when this like pandemic is over, maybe we can like have a drink at EGU or something. If you ever come yeah. to EGU or, or, or what, um, we love that. Sounds amazing. I yeah. Do, I, uh, we I get to stay that. in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Stay in touch, please. please. Yes. On Twitter, my my Twitter is trans icon Mika. I'm sure maybe mm-hmm. you've already found me. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, I'm fairly certain I have, but I'll I'll double check. <laughs> anyway, I better shoot. But yeah. um, it's been a pleasure, and yeah. see you soon. See you. Yeah. Later. Thank you, Ella. On the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Ciao. Don't worry. We're we're gonna stop the podcast. We're not we're not gonna do more podcasts without you. Don't worry. Yeah, you better. We're gonna, we're gonna, <laughs> like yeah okay now now she's gone (laughs) there you have it my conversation with dr mika tosca and featuring dr ella gilbert as well you can find dr tosca on twitter at trans underscore icon underscore mika and you can find ella dr ella gilbert at dr underscore gilbs with a z or a z on twitter i'm at dan jones ocean and you can follow the podcast at climate sci pod and the websites again, that's mictosca.com, ellagilbert.co.uk, and danjonesocean.com. Okay, so I'd like to end with a little bit of a statement here. When somebody who is trans or who experiences gender variance or who is gender non-conforming or whose gender doesn't match their assigned birth, it's important to listen to them when they tell you about their gender experiences. They're telling you about their internal state, their internal life, and they are the own, they are the world's expert in their own body, in their own mind, and what's going on inside them. So a good, a really great way to be an ally is when a, a trans person or a gender non-conforming person tells you about their experience, take it on board. You don't have to understand every bit of it, but accept it, say that it's okay, normalize it and uh yeah that's a good way to to be an ally so take take care of yourselves talk to you later bye bye